Al Jazeera podcast. Palestinians bombed by Israel, hundreds killed and thousands injured. Gaza under siege, running out of supplies. Hundreds of Israelis killed and abducted by Hamas fighters. Communities pounded by rocket fire. Do civilians have any protection under international law? I'm Fully Batibo and you're listening to the Inside Story podcast where we dissect, analyze and help define major global stories. Let's bring in our guest now for today's Inside Story in London, Jeffrey Nice, barrister and former prosecutor at the International Criminal Court. In Chicago is Omar Shakir, the Israel and Palestine director at Human Rights Watch. He wrote a report two years ago on Israeli war crimes against Palestinians and was deported from Israel as a result of his investigation. And in Ontario, Canada is Michael Link, professor emeritus in the Faculty of Law at Western University and a former UN Special Rapporteur on the occupied Palestinian territory from where he was banned by Israel. Gentlemen, welcome to you all. Thank you very much for joining us on Inside Story. Michael Link, if I can start with you, the airstrikes the past few days on Gaza have been indiscriminate uh, and widespread in response to Hamas's surprise attack on Israel. Help us understand first what the rules of engagement and the fundamental principles that both parties in this conflict are expected to follow under international law and specifically what Israel's obligations are as the occupying power. Sure. Um, the primary responsibility of the occupying power in any occupation is the protection of the uh, of the protected people under occupation. That's to ensure their well-being, that their first interests are always uh, at the top of the mind in what the occupying occupying power is doing. In a moment of conflict, um, the standard rules of international humanitarian law wind up applying, which means that there must be uh, the occupying power and the military force must always make a distinction, a very clear distinction between civilian and, uh, and military uh, objects. It's forbidden uh, to be able to target um, civilian populations, either directly or mm. through their property or through their means of, uh, of subsistence. And the other aspect of this uh, is obviously the siege that's going on now. We know that Gaza has been under a blockade since 2006. I have, uh, as special rapporteur, uh, the, uh, in one of my reports to the United Nations, stated that this amounted to um, collective punishment, which is uh, absolutely forbidden under Article 33 of the Fourth Geneva Convention. The total siege that has been placed on Gaza now since the weekend, where they're cutting off of of water, sanitation, food, and any kind of supplies getting into Gaza um, is forbidden under uh, international humanitarian law. It's mm. forbidden to use starvation or the um, uh, or the deprivation of any kind of the necessities of life that would support a civilian uh, population. So, so there are a number of areas yeah. of deep concern with respect to international law. So, Michael Link, a, a number of violations being committed here by the Israelis. What about violent resistance against the occupation. Is that legal? Um, the, yes, the answer is yes, but the answer is, is also that it must be done within uh, very clear boundaries. Um, 
people under occupation, people under colonialism have had for a number of decades the right to resist uh, their subjugation. But that must be done again within the rules of, uh, uh, of international law. Mm -hmm. And in particular, it means that even though um, you may be using the right to resist any military force to end the occupation, that you cannot target, for example, civilians. Right. Uh, you cannot fire rockets into uh, civilian areas. You cannot kidnap uh, civilians or kill them. So all of these donate that, that any side to a conflict, be it the occupying power increasing its oppression or a resistance force trying to uh, beat back the occupying power, all of them have to obey uh, the rules of international law in terms of who you target and what military actions you wind up uh, in committing. So, Jeffrey Nice, I want to bring you on this particular point and clarify something with you that's uh, I think a lot of people are asking about, and that is the fact that Hamas is a non-state actor in this conflict. And both Israel and U.S. politicians have characterized Hamas attack on Israel as terrorism. Targeting, as we've heard, civilians under international law is illegal, illegal under the rules of war. But those rules are set by countries that govern themselves. What about non-state actors like Hamas? What's the law regarding them? Well, the law's a bit unsettled because as a non-state actor, then arguably Israel may not be fully entitled or entitled to argue self-defense in the way that it has. And the whole issue has to be approached in the way that's been so helpfully described by my much more authoritative colleague, Mr. Lynch, uh, as what has to happen in respect of an occupying power. So um, the position is, exactly as explained, that they can resist the occupying power. They're, those within Gaza can resist the occupying power within the law, using force, but without breaking the law. Um, and they may not have to consider the possible defense of self-defense that's been raised by Israel. But that doesn't change the duty on them to act lawfully. And I'm afraid we're in the position, not afraid, it's not for me to express any uh, side one way or the other. The position is clear that the opening actions of this particular part of this unhappy long-term conflict, the opening actions are not lawful because you cannot go, for example, and kill people at a party in the way that they were killed and other civilians. So it's a complicated issue, but mm. um, the rule to keep in mind is that both sides, subject to the limitations that may apply because of their different status, one from the other, the, the but, basic point has to be that the rule of law has Nice, to apply. But, Sir Jeffrey Nice, was Saturday and Hamas's actions the opening action, really, was it? Or is it the occupation that's lasted over 70 years? Well, it's the opening action of this part of a long contest or a long series of contests. And... Um, how that would play out in a court of law is not entirely easy to force, forecast. Mm. And indeed, the whole question of self-defense of a country vis-a-vis -vis or against a non-state actor, which is the, would be the position for Israel here, has never been played out yet in a court of law. Okay. And that, I think, brings me, if I may just interpose this point, to something of great importance. Um, why is this matter not and never before a court of law. There are courts that should and could have dealt with 
the earlier events, including, for example, uh, Protective Edge in 2014 and the other mowing the grass, as I think they're called, mm -hmm. um, attacks by, by Israel. And, of course, they're never considered because Israel is not a participating member of the International Criminal Court. Right, they're not it's part of the It's almost impossible. Right. Yeah. Let, let me bring uh, Omar Shakir into the conversation, if I may, uh, Sir Jeffrey. Uh, uh, nice. If I can, Omar, uh, your thoughts about we've, what we've heard so far from both uh, Jeffrey Nice and Michael Link, and also based on the information that Human Rights Watch has observed on the ground these past few days, what would you say are the potential war crimes that are being committed by either side in this conflict right now? We're here precisely because parties have for too long flagrantly violated international humanitarian law and already in the first few days of this conflict, we're seeing much of the same. We should be crystal clear. Um, Hamas's brutal assault on, on southern Israel, including uh, deliberately targeting civilians, shooting them in mass, taking as hostages women and children, those are war crimes, flagrant violations of international law. They have no justification. We've seen the Israeli army pound the densely populated Gaza Strip uh, over repeated days and evenings. This includes dropping explosive weapons with wide area effects into Gaza. We have already seen large numbers of civilians killed, including children. We've seen high-rise buildings reduced to rubble. We've seen the cutting of electricity, of fuel, of water, of the entry of goods, of humanitarian aid. This is a clear war crime, as Professor Link noted, which is not only um, collective punishment, um, you know, an entire 2.2 million people punished for the actions of individuals, but it's also potentially starvation uh, as a tool of war. Um, and we'll see where things go in the coming days. Right. Israeli authorities have a long track record of committing serious war crimes in Gaza, including deliberately targeting civilian buildings, wiping out families, destroying high-rise buildings without any apparent military target there. So we, we're seeing a real descent into darkness. Can I ask you about one specific um aspect of all this, because the laws of war, Omar, require the warring parties to give effective uh, warning advance of attacks uh, that may affect civilian populations. And we've seen this happen in the past in Gaza, where the Israeli military has given warning to civilians. Is it happening in this current conflict? It, are, are there effective warning, or warning signs given to the uh, Palestinian population of Gaza? Look, I think we're too early in our research to make definitive conclusions. We've heard, um, you know, in our research examples where warnings have been provided, and there have been allegations that there have been cases where warnings are not provided. But let me be clear on the law. Even where warnings are provided, that does not make an airstrike necessarily legal. For example, we've documented in previous rounds of escalations, after warnings have been giving, destroying high-rise buildings with hundreds of homes and businesses solely because there, there may have been uh, you know, uh, an office for a Palestinian armed group there. Something like that would clearly be a violation of, of, of international law if disproportionate or indiscriminate. So the warnings do not themselves give you carte blanche to 
to, to, to kill. The fact right. that a warning has not been given, certainly um, if it involves significant civilian, civilian casualties could be evidence of a war crime. But it's really important to note we have a lot of disinformation out there. Indeed. There are a lot of things happening in real time. These sort of things require detailed factual investigations. The Israeli government is blocking access, has long blocked access to Gaza, to UN mechanisms, to human rights organizations, which makes this work very difficult. So I think we need to be careful in making concrete claims. There are some that we can make based on the brazenness which with they've been carried out or stated, but others will take time. It's interesting that you point out to the disinformation, and I'm curious to find out in just a little while how the media coverage and public perception may impact uh, efforts to uphold international law. Uh, Michael Link, let me come back to you and ask you um, a question about the uh, issue of proportionality here. Israel has one of the most powerful uh, militaries in the world, of course. How does international law define proportionality and distinction in armed conflicts, and how do these principles apply to the situation in Gaza? Sure. Well, the distinction is clear. You, you're not to target uh, <clears throat> civilian populations. You're, you're to try to minimize, to the absolute degree possible, any harm to civilians or to their uh, or to their property. Um, in in terms of the uh, the question of uh, uh, proportionality, um, it. It is permitted in international law, I guess, to be able to choose a military target which might have consequences uh, for civilians either in their lives uh, or their property if the um, the advantage militarily is overwhelming in favor of it, of attacking that. Um, all of that said, though, um, it's important that militaries never use these rules loosely. And Israel has been cited on a number of occasions on reviews of its attacks, particularly in Gaza or in Lebanon, that it has a very um, flexible or elastic definition with respect to these strict rules on international humanitarian law and how you are to go about choosing uh, particular targets. We can see in virtually every one of the major uh, conflicts uh, or assaults on Gaza that have occurred since 2008, 2009, um, that there are many credible instances where these rules have been disregarded. The, you know, the one example I can I'll cite to you now is 2014, when uh, roughly 2,300 Palestinians were killed in in Gaza over the course of the 50-day war. Uh, Two thirds of those were uh, were civilians, and there were many instances where uh, question marks or actually firm conclusions were drawn that the way in which Israel targeted the destruction of buildings or the targeting of militants had too high a price with respect to uh, uh, civilian lives, civilian wounding, uh, and uh, civilian property to be mm. justified under the laws of war. All right, so Jeffrey Nice, let me come to you now. As we've heard, both sides have broken the rules of war here. And we've heard from some leaders calling on Israel to exercise restraint in response to the attacks that it suffered. But the Biden administration in the U.S., it seems as all but given the green light to Israel to retaliate against Hamas, vowing its public unconditional support for Netanyahu's war. As uh, Michael Link said there, we have been here before in 2014 where the rules of war were again ignored. What consequences then, what avenues are there for accountability if this keeps continuing to happen? There are, there are very limited avenues of accountability as long as 
uh, Israel remains uh, immune so far as the International Criminal Court is concerned, and as long as America would ban any referral to that court by the Security Council. Um, and this is a matter of real concern, because the rules of law, as have been so helpfully explained by uh, the two other speakers, require a great deal of Israel. They re require, for example, not just the proportionality that we've heard of, but mm -hmm. proper record-keeping, so that in the case of Gaza, if you decide you want to target a particular dwelling or house or building because of who you say what's got to be in, in it, you've also got to have regard to the impossibility of avoiding collateral damage in the form of human, uh, of civilian suffering and deaths because of the nature of the building, the limited ability or complete inability of civilians to escape from the area where the particular targeted building is going to be bombed. Now, this detail in the legitimate, if it ever is legitimate, defense to this kind of bombing is never going to be available for the public to see as long as Israel is kept away from any formal criminal court. And that is the position at the moment. And it has been clear that Israel is happy to avoid uh, official investigation into its practices. And when inve official investigation happens in respect of, for example, the wall at the International Court of Justice, mm. uh, it is just disregarded. And so when Biden said, as he said yesterday, uh, as well as what you said, he said, you know, we respect the rule of law, one is entitled to ask him, and I hope someone will, if you respect the rule of law, why aren't you prepared yourself to join the International Criminal Court mm. and not to ban the access of others, the victims in particular, who are the, the concerns on all sides, okay. the victims, to yeah. consideration by the International Criminal Court? When I was uh, in Gaza shortly after the 2014 uh, Protective Edge event, um, I, I spoke uh, to Ishmael Hanaya leader of Hamas uh, in, in respect of a program for this channel was never actually aired. And he indicated at that stage that he was prepared for the then prosecutor, Fatou Ben Souda, to enter Gaza and to consider matters. But of course, that mm. wasn't going to be possible and Israel would never cooperate. All right. That's so what Omar we need to see. Omar Shakir, what, what is possible today? As both uh, Michael and Jeffrey have said, Israel is not party to the Rome statue. Hamas is a non-state actor. What consequences, what avenues are there for accountability today? Well, look, I mean, the International Criminal Court has a formal probe on serious crimes committed in Palestine. So they have, the court has set out that they have jurisdiction over crimes committed in Palestine. That would include, um, obviously, um, what's happening in Gaza with Israeli airstrikes, uh, with tools like uh, the, the complete cutting of electricity and water and everything else. It would include rocket strikes and other attacks that originate from Gaza. So that's there. Uh, the International Criminal Court released a statement yesterday outlining that 
the current context fits within part of their mandate. We know there's also, um, although not a criminal proceeding, that the International Court of Justice has been asked by the UN to issue an advisory opinion about the legal consequences, not only of Israel's occupation, but of the uh, treatment of, of, of discriminatory treatment of Palestinians. Mm -hmm. We know that the UN has mechanisms, including a commission of inquiry with a mandate. And, and again, the commission has outlined that the current events would fit within that mandate. Courts around the world have jurisdiction over crimes of the gravity we're seeing on the ground to investigate and prosecute. So we have the mechanisms there that what we have lacked is the political will, the will to actually ensure that impunity ends. So long as impunity continues, we're here precisely because we've seen unlawful attacks, we've seen systematic repression take place with impunity for years and decades. This needs to be addressed. All right. Michael, your thoughts, how do we make sure that impunity ends? What should the international community be doing to protect civilians more? Well, my opening thought is that we're here um, in another dreadful situation precisely because um, we haven't married international law, which is very clear with respect to the obligations of Israel and of Hamas, with international resolve. As long as international law continues to be sidelined, either through the peace processes that began with the Oslo uh, process in, in 1993, or with the host of UN Security Council and UN resolutions, um, Israel learns the lesson that impunity uh, actually is a reward for them. So I agree with Omar that we have the path uh, to accountability uh, through the investigations that have been going on since 2015 uh, at, with the Office of the Prosecutor at the International Criminal Court. Alas, justice moves slowly. Uh, the sun rises slowly with respect to this. And every several years, we seem to be adding another huge file mm. uh, to, the, uh, to the ICC with respect to what's going on in Palestine with no great movement uh, through the formal investigation process. And okay. I do want to point out, if I can just point out one, one uh, issue quickly, we've had three major commissions of inquiry uh, after the 2008-2009 conflict in Gaza, after the 2014, and after the 2018 Great March of Return. Each of these three major reports issued by the Human Rights Council pointed to the prevalence of, um, of impunity, the lack of accountability with respect to this. One of the reports says, we've, we have a justice crisis in the international, uh, sorry, in the occupied Palestinian territory. It's imperative that the international community, community learn the lessons that ignoring international law when it comes to Israel and Palestine only begs the repetition of these awful events. All right. So, my, so Jeffrey Nice, I'll come to you for the final word. Given the evolving nature of this conflict and warfare, how should international law adapt to address these challenges that we've talked about and protect human rights more effectively in Gaza, the Palestinian territories and beyond? Yeah. How, how should the law adapt? It's not the law that adapts. It's the contribution of your last speaker that is so important. The, the citizen of the world has the idea, mistaken, that there is a world order of law for war, and there isn't. There are bits and pieces, and it suits the politicians and the leaders of the most powerful countries for it to remain that way. It's not for the law to adapt. 
it's for the leaders to show the determination that the law should become universal and should be accessible, by which I mean accessible to the benefit and purposes of the victims wherever events like this occur. And it, okay. is a, it is a tragedy not just concerning Israel, but concerning many other countries, that the lessons available to us after the Second World War, when we learned how humans can behave to humans and we set up a number of instruments in order to save us from it ever happening again, it's a tragedy that we haven't learned that lesson and Omar, continue to allow, through one means or another, corruption of the legal process to be maintained by inactivity of the big state players. Omar, your final thought on this. What we're seeing in Israel-Palestine is a challenge to the rules-based international order. We see the you know Western world rallying around international law accountability when it comes to Ukraine, but that has too often been lacking in Israel-Palestine. So long as the world accepts a situation in which impunity runs wild, in which we're not defending the fundamental um, international legal order in Israel-Palestine, it undermines that protection everywhere around the world. And so it's not only an imperative given the urgent humanitarian situation on the ground, but it's an imperative to protecting the very rules that were created decades ago to protect people around the world from, mm -hmm. from, from, that, from war and its effects. As long as we allow this to continue, we fail to speak out, recognize the reality for what it is, and ensure that international law is protected, impunity ends, that Israel's apartheid against Palestinians is recognized for what it is and is dismantled, we'll continue to see civilians in Israel, Palestine, but around the world at peril. Thank you all very much. So Jeffrey Nice, Omar Shakir, Michael Link, thank you all for a very insightful discussion. Thank you very much. This episode was produced by Dermot Fleming, Fintan Monaghan, Fungi Nguyen, and Gemma Harris. Studio sound was by Alvaro Galan. The program was edited by Ahmed El Tafaga, Zaina Bader, and Joe DeFrias. Be sure to subscribe to the Inside Story podcast to catch every episode. Thank you for listening. Tune in on Thursday for our next episode. Coming up on The Take, as Israel's war with Hamas escalates, a look at the U.S. role and where this conflict is going. That's The Take by Al Jazeera. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.